happy Independence Day to you all, or Independence Weekend. By my calculations, uh, 241 years, and you think of the women and men who have paid ultimate prices for our freedom, the freedom that we can gather together to assemble, that we can tell others of salvation by faith in Christ, that we can open and divide the Word of God, that we can pray that we can share the truth of salvation with our children and grandchildren and neighbors, that's great freedom. And we should never take that for granted. Let's go ahead and uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, as a nation, we have freedoms historically that many have not ever enjoyed. May we never take it for granted. May we be filled with gratitude. May we lead lives that will live out the freedom that you have entrusted to us as individuals, as families, as a nation. Father, be with the leaders of our country. We ask that you would give them wisdom. And allow them to govern well and fairly and to protect the freedoms that we enjoy. Father, we pray for nations in the world that lack freedom. That you might grant them increased freedom, especially of worship and the right to have faith and your son Jesus for salvation. And Father, thank you for the freedom we have to look at your word, your inspired, inerrant word. Take it and apply it to our hearts and our lives for our betterment and your glory. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Richie. Richie was the guy we voted in first grade to represent class 101 on the school council. Richie was the man. He was the most popular guy in our class. The reason was obvious. Richie was the class clown, and he could make us laugh. What more important characteristic can you have in a leader that that he could make us laugh. By fifth grade, Richie's jokes had become stale and we were no longer interested. Besides, my family had moved. Nan, Nan was the leader. Not so much of my class, but of my neighborhood. When Nan said, we're going to get on our bikes, we got on our bikes. When Nan said, we're going to the park, we went to the park. When Nan said we were going down to the river to find snakes, we went down to the river to find snakes. You didn't cross Nan. If you did, you would end up with a bloody nose. Nan was our leader because she could whoop all of us in a fist fight. And that was rather important in fifth grade. It made Nan the undisputed leader. By ninth grade, Chris was the leader in my grade, in my school. Oh, it wasn't because he could tell a good joke. I don't think he knew any. And I have no idea if he had a good left hook. 
But Chris could run faster, jump higher, and throw the ball further than any of us. And because of those qualities, we made Chris the clear leader of our class. Now, I hope you're a bit disturbed by the qualifications of leadership in my childhood. But if truth be told, some of those same qualities are exactly the qualities in which we choose leaders today at all realms. People who can hold an audience because they're funny or people who are a little bit rude and tough and a bully or individuals who are athletic and artistic and therefore they have a platform to talk about the various mores and values that we as a nation embrace. We'd think that we would have graduated from first grade, fifth grade, and ninth grade. But the truth is, sometimes, not always, but sometimes we pick our leaders based upon the same shallow criteria that we used in elementary school, middle school, and early high school. It should not be. But if we're honest, too often it is. I think the Bible gives us some incredible examples of what God thinks a leader ought to be like. This is just one example, Nehemiah, but he's a good example. And today you and I are going to see four qualities, characteristics in his life that I think make him an outstanding leader. He cares for people. He bears, he stands up under their burden. He prepares so that he's ready to act and then he dares and he gets involved. A godly leader cares, bears, prepares, and a large part of that preparation is in prayer. And then he dares to get involved. That's the life of Nehemiah. I want to begin by just reading verse 1 and the last phrase in verse 11. This is the sum total of what we know about Nehemiah's early life. This is the sum total of what we know about his family, his heritage, his lineage. Let me read verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev, generally December, in the 20th year, as I was in the Susa, the capital. Now the last phrase of verse 11, now I was cupbearer to the king. This is about all we know about his childhood, but it does tell us a little bit. The first thing I might notice is that he probably grew up in a God-centered, God-honoring, God-exalting home. Now we may say, well, where did you get that from the text? His name, Nehemiah, means the comfort of God. His father's name, Hakaliah, means wait upon God. Now it is possible that these are merely Jewish names and because of the Jewish heritage they used these names. But we know from captivity, and his family has been in captivity probably for 150 years, that many of those biblical names died off. And they took names that were more applicable to the 
Babylonian or Chaldean and the Medo-Persian empires, and yet this family continued in names that exalted God, the comfort of God, and waiting upon God. The implication might be that Nehemiah was brought up in a church-attending family. He was brought up in a family that studied the sacred scrolls. He was brought up on the biblical accounts in the early Old Testament, probably the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the greatness that God wrought for his people. He was brought up on these truths, and it strengthened his faith and helped make him the man that he is. The second thing that I might surmise from the beginning of the book is this. Nehemiah has probably never been to Jerusalem. He's probably never made the 800 to 1,000 mile trek, depending on which road you take, from where he lives, the citadel of Sosa, a 10-acre winter palace that was the center of world politics and domination. He's probably never made the trip from the citadel back to Jerusalem. In fact, most likely... Nehemiah was born in captivity as a slave, almost certainly born in Babylon. And then sometime in his young adulthood, he moved 225 miles from Babylon to Susa, where he became someone powerful in the Medo-Persian Empire. It's unlikely that Nehemiah's family was part of the early returns back to Jerusalem. You remember in 605 and 586 B.C., God raised up the Babylonians, also called the Chaldeans, to come to destroy the Temple Mount and the city of Jerusalem. And you remember Habakkuk, we just studied him, was upset that God would raise up a wicked nation. Even though Judah was wicked, it seemed like Babylon was more wicked. Why would God use a more wicked nation to chastise a less wicked nation? And he learned that God can use all things. And so during that destruction, many Jews died, but many others were carried into captivity. We read about that with Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in the book of Daniel. Well, those young men who were raised in Babylon are part of the heritage of Nehemiah. He's probably third, fourth, fifth generation from that. And you remember eventually Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire and a king, Darius, said that they could go back. And there was a group in 557 under Zerubbabel and they went back to Jerusalem. They went back to rebuild the destroyed temple to rebuild the house of God, the books of Haggai and Zechariah. Nehemiah's family was not part of that. And then 80 or 90 years later, in the mid-400s, Ezra, from the book of Ezra, went back with a number of priests, and they called upon the people to restore holy living and the law of God. And Nehemiah's family was, was not part of that. And then in 444 B.C., God raises up Nehemiah himself to go back to rebuild the walls. 
He's going to go back to go to a city he's probably never visited and probably never seen. People he does not know anything about, but they're his heritage, they're his lineage. That's the second thing that I would observe from the opening. The third thing that I would observe is that he has a job. He is cupbearer to the king. Verse 11, part C. Now think about that. When's the last time parents and grandparents, your child came up to you and said, when I grow up, I want to be a cupbearer. It doesn't happen. They say, I want to be a firewoman, a policeman. I want to be a ballerina. I want to be a quarterback. I want to be a pastor. Something really exciting. That's what they're always coming and saying, I want to do one of these big-time jobs. They don't say, I want to be a cupbearer. It kind of sounds like a butler, a dishwasher, something that's not very exciting, right? But it's far from that. You see, the cupbearer is essentially the prime minister. The cupbearer is the most important, most trusted individual in the entire empire. Kings, monarchs throughout this time period feared assassination. Dynasties were constantly being overthrown. And one of the means of assassination that was very prevalent was poisoning the food or the drink that was going to be served to the king. And think about that. If you want to kill the king, you're probably going to saddle up to the cook and the cupbearer to slide poison into what the king or the queen are going to eat or drink. And so the most important person, your right-hand individual, if you're the monarch, is the cupbearer. You need someone you can trust. Someone who will not allow poison to go into your food. Someone who will eat the food, taste the drink, and if there's poison, well, no more cupbearer, but at least the king lives. Even in the Medo-Persian Empire, a hundred years earlier, under Darius III, a man named Bogo Oase, really that's the person's name, he poisoned the food that Darius was going to eat, Darius III. And the cupbearer ate the food first and died. And Darius III then made the assassin, Bogo Oase, eat the rest of it, and there was no assassin left. Assassin died. This is a very important position. Now think about it. Nehemiah is a Jew in the Medo-Persian Empire. That means technically he is a slave. Technically he's not even a freed man. And because of his characteristics, because of his integrity, because of the life that he lives, this slave has become the second most powerful man and the most powerful monarchy in the world. In fact, we know a fair amount about the citadel of Susa on the Shar River. It's 10 acres. It was the winter palace. That's where Nehemiah resides. The spade of archaeology has dug up a fair amount. Just consider the Great Hall. The Great Hall alone is 350 feet long and 350 feet wide. That means it's longer than a football field, wider than a football field. It was held up by 72 
columns, each column being between 65 and 80 feet high in the air. And that was just one building. That's the Great Hall. This is a powerful dynasty. And the second most powerful man in the dynasty is Nehemiah. That's where he holds court. That's where he's prime minister. And that's where he's a leader. And I think we're going to see four characteristics. He cares, he bears, he prepares in prayer, and he dares. Four characteristics that make him a great leader that will make us better leaders if we incorporate them into our lives as well. I want to pick up in verse 2 and read all the way to verse 4. That Hanani, one of my brothers, I take this to be a literal brother, of Nehemiah, I think one of his literal brothers, took an investigative trip to Jerusalem on behalf of Nehemiah and comes back to make a report to Nehemiah on the city of his lineage. That Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, the capital. And they said to me, the remnant there... In the province, who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. As you and I begin our passage, the first of my four alliterative words, I don't know who I stole them from, is care. Real leaders care. Now we ought to be surprised. We ought to be surprised that Nehemiah cares anything for Jerusalem. It's 800 to 1,000 miles away. He's never been there. He probably knows nobody that is there. It's a city in ruins. In fact, it's a city that's under the control of a number of different fiefdoms, a number of different uh, small kingships. It's a troubled area. You think the Middle East is troubled today. It was troubled back then as well. It's one of those places that if you're not there, you say, good riddance, I don't want anything to do with. We would expect that Nehemiah would have nothing to do with them, and yet he cares. He cares because they're his people group. He cares because they're his heritage. He cares because they're his lineage. And he sends somebody back, a brother and other men, to get a report, to come back to tell him the truth. Because leaders not only care, they want the real truth. They want to know what's really going on. And so Nehemiah says, tell me about the city of my heritage. What's going on there? And his brother says, you want the truth? The city is in ruins. The people are in ruins. The walls are destroyed. There's enemies on all sides. It's a devastating situation. And we might at this point expect Nehemiah to, to wipe his hands clean and say, okay, not my problem. They're a thousand miles away. But leaders care, and they care profusely. And they care enough to do something about it. This is a room filled with leaders. It's a room filled with leaders. If you breathe, you probably lead in some capacity, whether at home or in the workplace, or through some kind of entertainment and activity, you're leaders. I'll just pick on the men for a moment. If you're a husband, 
You're a leader. You may not have signed up. You were given the mantle of leadership by God. Leadership in the home does not mean you get what you want. Leadership in the home does not mean that you get to be a dictator and tell everyone else what to do. In fact, that's a bad leader. A good leader leads so well that those who are being led benefit from the leadership. And so we have to ask ourselves, husbands, fathers, are those we leading, are they benefiting from our leadership? If not, we're poor leaders. And we need to work at that. I think of a very poor leader in the home, Eli. He had a pretty important job. He was high priest, 1 Samuel chapter 3. But he was so involved in his job and so involved in other things that apparently he didn't have time to raise his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And because of the tribe they were a part of, those sons grew up to be priests. They grew up to work in the temple of God. And they grew up poorly. They grew up without values, and without morals, without behavior. It's not always the parents' fault, but in this case, it was Eli's fault. And because he led poorly, God took the life of his two sons. He led poorly. God calls us to lead well, and part of leading well is to care. The second part of leading well is to bear. It's not enough to care. We need to bear the real burdens of those we lead. Immediately the text says that Nehemiah, when he hears that the walls of Jerusalem are in ruins and the people are destitute, he sits down. And we say, well, that's not much of an example. I mean, we want leaders of action and he's sitting down. But he's sitting down like a Hasidic Jew today would sit down in mourning on a low stool. Sometimes for seven days they mourn on a low stool because they bear the real burden of another. And that's what Nehemiah does. He cares so much. He sits down and he begins to fast. He begins to pray. He begins to mourn. How long? We don't know. But the text tells us that the period is from the month of Kislev to the month of Nisan, that's December to April, May, that's somewhere between four and five and a half months. This isn't a glib prayer. This isn't a couple moments of silence. Let's have a moment of silence for Jerusalem. All right, now where is the fireworks tonight? It's not that way. He is concerned about what's going on in another part of the world, and he's fasting, he's mourning and praying for four to five months on behalf of these people. I want to remember the lesson from Nehemiah. He cares so much about others that he fasts and prays. And the question I want to ask myself is this. Who living 800 to 1,000 miles away do I pray for? Do I fast for? Do I uphold their burdens? What missionary... What Christ follower, what individual who needs Jesus away from me, am I fasting, am I praying, am I mourning on behalf of asking God to do what only God can do? Or closer to home, who are we fasting and mourning and praying for? I think of the life group that Betty Ann and I are a part of. Last year, uh, 
We didn't tell our kids that we did this, or maybe some of them did. I don't know. We didn't tell our kids. But we set a, a time aside where we all fasted and prayed for all of our kids and our grandkids in our group, and we lifted them up in prayer by name. Because that's what leaders do. They care and they bear, and we wonder, who are we bearing for? And who would God have you, me, care and bear for in the future? Do you see the irony in the text? It's easily missed if we don't think about it. He's the cupbearer, and he's praying, mourning, and fasting. Do you see the irony? We've got a problem here. He's the cupbearer. How would you like to be fasting as the cupbearer to the king? One spoon of Persian chocolate delight, and that's all you get. You don't get to eat the rest of the dessert. One bite of tenderloin cooked to perfection, and you don't get to eat the rest of the meal because you're mourning, you're praying, and you're fasting. I mean, I don't know if you've ever fasted. But when I fast, I don't want you talking about food. I don't want to hear about food. I don't want to see food. I don't want to smell food. Out of sight, well, not quite out of mind because I'm still dwelling on it. But I don't want you to help that. I want to be far away from food. There was a Lay's potato chip commercial. It's a number of years old. It had Boomer Esiason, a quarterback, with a couple other quarterbacks. It had Troy Aikman and uh, Joe Montana, I believe. And in it, Boomer Esiason comes up to the other quarterbacks and he says, I bet you can't eat just one Lay's potato chip. If you can stop at one Lay's potato chip, you win. But if you fail, you got to shave your head bald. And the tagline is, who would be dumb enough to take that bet? And then the camera pans over and there's Troy Aikman and Joe Montana and their heads are shaven. And there's a bunch of chips on their laps. Nehemiah could have won that bet. One Lay's potato chip, it's safe, O king, and he could lay off. One bite of Persian chocolate delight, it's safe, O king, and he laid off. One bite of tenderloin, it's safe, O king, and he laid off. He cared, and he bared, and he also prepared in his preparation was through prayer. Let's look at verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. It reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How does the Lord's Prayer start? By exalting the holiness, the greatness, the otherliness, the majesty of God. How does Nehemiah's prayer begin? O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. It ascends to the greatness of God. I thought of what began in 1554. In 1554, Dr. John Calvin in Geneva began a sermon series on the book of Job. A hundred and 59 sermons on the book of Job. You think I'm long-winded? Brother Calvin is up there, man. 
159 sermons. And he tells us in the first paragraph of the first sermon, what is the focus of all 159? It's the majesty of God. And so he preaches 159 straight sermons on the majesty of God. And Nehemiah, who is caring and bearing, and now he's preparing in prayer, where does he start? He starts with the majesty of God. This is an incredible man. Verse 6 says that he prays day and night. This isn't a prayer that's glibly offered. This isn't a good bread, good meat, good gosh, let's eat, let's get to the dinner type of prayer. He is focused on the Lord. He's praying day and night. Let's look at some of that prayer, verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, that is the people of Judah, the Jews, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, can you imagine this sentence? Think of this sentence. Even I and my father's house. All right, his grammar needs help. Should have said my father's house. Well, you know. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. I want you to think about that for a moment. Is that what you would have prayed? He's talking about events that took place 150 years earlier. 605, 586 B.C. He's about to leave in 444 B.C. The events that he's talking about, he was not alive to do. He was not alive to violate the commandments, the laws, the statutes of God. And yet he says, I and my father's house were the reason. All of this calamity is on me. It's on my father's house. Now I might have said, Lord, what kind of people were my, my lineage? I hope you got them. I've been in slavery because of them. How come nobody went back earlier to rebuild your temple? How come nobody went back earlier to rebuild the walls? I hope you punished them because I'm in slavery because of them. But that's not what he says. He says, I and my father's house, we have violated the commandments. We have violated your laws, your statutes. I want to say this very gently. But I don't think evangelicals are very good with this text. We say things like, our country would be a lot further along if not for, and then we have a line and we fill in the blank. If not for the Republicans, if not for the Democrats, if not for the Independents, if not for the Social Democrats, if not for the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. If not for the immigrants, if not for the Muslims, if not for. And we want to point to someone else for the reason that we find ourselves 
in difficult straits. What did the chronicler do? Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and they will turn to me and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them. Then heaven will open up. Then I will forgive them. Then I will heal their land. Do you see what the chronicler does? you see what Nehemiah does? Instead of pointing the finger, the responsibility becomes ours. I think of an article written by the London Times a while back. It was a number of years ago, probably two decades or more ago. The London Times sent the following question to a number of noted Brit authors. They said, respond to this question and we're going to write an article with your responses. And the question was this. What is wrong with the world is? And then the authors get to fill it in. Well, a Christ follower, G.K. Chesterton, wrote back, what is wrong with the world is me, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And he got it exactly right. Why does Romans 1 say the world groans? The earth groans. It's because of personal sin. That's what Romans 1 to 3 is all about. And then redemption is chapters 4 and 5 on else. And then 6 and 7 is that idea of after we come to Christ, there's sanctification. But chapters 1 to 3, why does the world groan? Because of personal, individual sin, my sin and yours. Leaders care, they bear, they prepare in prayer. And we'll see more of the prayer in verses 8 and 9. For after exalting God and confessing to God, we finally get to a petition for God, verses 8 and 9. Remember the word that you, God, commanded your servant Moses, saying, and he's going to cite Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. It's very interesting what goes on. Nehemiah goes back to the Pentateuch, the first five books, and he cites Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30, and he cites God's promises back to the Lord. The issue is not that God has forgotten. The issue is not that there's a little bit of a mind block and the Lord needs to be reminded of what God has written. In fact, we see this pattern over and over again in Scripture where God's people cite Scripture back to the Lord. Why? It's not to remind God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. It's to remind us. And it's to make note of the conditional aspects of so many promises. God says, I will bless if. And the if is if you obey. We saw that last week. And so Nehemiah is reminding himself and he's reminding the Lord that, hey, we're getting close. We're starting to obey. We're starting to admit our sin. We're starting to go back. And if we do that, God, then you have promised this great blessing. 
You see, part of the preparation for Nehemiah is he knows the Word of God. Part of the preparation for Nehemiah is he's a man of the Word and he can cite God's promises back to the Lord. And I've got to ask myself, how many of God's promises can I recite back to the Lord that I actually know? And beyond how many promises I actually know, how many do I know in context, and how many do I regularly cite back to God in prayer? That's part of his preparation. He cares about these people. He fasts and mourns and prays. He bears for these people. He prepares in prayer for these people. He prepares by citing the Word of God for these people. And then he dares. He's a lot like Isaiah... In Isaiah chapter 6, where God says, Whom shall I send? Whom shall go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am, Lord. Send me. And that's what it means to dare. A real leader is willing to go and do. A real leader is willing to get involved. Think of what this will cost Nehemiah. I mean, he lounges in the great hall. He lives in the citadel of Susa, a 10-acre winter palace, and he lives there year-round. He's the second most powerful man in the world. He's essentially the prime minister. And he's going to go to his employer, Artaxerxes, not exactly a man known for patience, and say, can I have a leave of absence? And when I come back, do you mind giving me my job back? And when I go, I'm going to travel 800 to 1,000 miles on treacherous roads. And I'm going to lead people to rebuild walls. And I'm going to have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And I'm going to face false prophets. And we're going to rebuild the, the walls. And we're going to run out of money and I'm going to end up paying for it on my own. That's what it means to dare. You see, leaders care, bear, prepare in prayer, and they dare. The question I asked myself yesterday as I was preparing is which of these four characteristics has God developed most in my life? And which of these four characteristics do I need God to develop most in my life? And I want to ask God to begin to develop those areas that clearly have a long, long way to go. But I don't think it's just me. It might be you. We all lead in various capacities. And there's lots of biblical models for leadership. There's just one. But this model cares and bears and prepares in prayer and he dares to get involved. I'm going to pray, and then they're going to show a short video. And then, as I promised you, I'm going to lead us in an a cappella song. No, I'm just going to say <laughs> goodbye. So let's, let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for some leaders. I look out and see some amazing leaders. Amazing leaders in our community, amazing leaders in your church here at Highland. And I'm encouraged and blessed by them. And blessed to be under their leadership. Thank you for them. And Father, we all would readily admit that even the most advanced leaders to 
the newest leaders, we all have areas to grow. And so, Father, grow us, mature us, help us to care and to stand up under, to bear, and to do the preparation, the hard work, to prepare with prayer, and then to dare to lead. And help us to lead for your glory. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Quick little video.